I'm gonna ask you if you'll take your copy of God's word and meet me in the book of Luke this morning, the book of Luke. We're gonna continue in our miracles series. As we do that, I just wanna take a second to wish all of our dads happy Father's Day and how grateful we are for those dads who exemplify uh, the fatherhood of God. And I want to acknowledge that there are many of us, some of you who have father wounds and holidays bring up terrible memories. Um, But my prayer every Father's Day is not that we would derive our understanding of fatherhood of God from our earthly fathers, but that the mandate and the standard of God's fatherliness towards us would be the standard by which our earthly fathers would be measured. Which means that men in this room, we have an incredibly difficult task. Uh, And that cannot be accomplished successfully apart from the work of the Spirit. And so for those who are hurting and grieving, we see you, we join you in that, and we walk walk with you in that and pray my prayer is that the fatherhood of God would meet you there. I also want to take just a quick second to uh, talk a bit about Juneteenth. Uh, that was yesterday. It's such a joyous celebration and commemoration. If you've not had a chance to read our very own Monty Rivers article that he wrote on our website, check out our blog. It's phenomenal. Um, Juneteenth is such a time of remembrance and commemoration. And I sometimes, in order to feel the weight of certain moments, have to take myself back to um, 1865 in Galveston, Texas, when those officers rode into that town. Months after the ceasefire had been signed in that courthouse at Appomattox and years after the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves in the South, with the exception of those border states. And to continue to be working and to continue to be working and laboring, not knowing all the while legally that you are free. And there's such a direct parallel to what it means to be a Christian because so many of us are continuing to try to please God through our work, laboring, trying to please God and not realizing that in the resurrection of Christ, he has come to give us the announcements that we are free. And so our bondage is self-inflicted because we are not bound in Christ Jesus. And so uh, it was fun to see all of the celebrations around our city and really around our country. And I pray that we as a church would continue to press into these hard areas as we will in the days ahead, pressing into these hard areas to bring clarity, but to also see the ways in which God is working, maybe in ways that we're not used to. And finally, before we hop into the text, This is the last Sunday for Good Ballot Reports. And so uh, we are uh, in the process of bringing on three new elders. And so if you uh, would like to um, uh, offer a word or um, if you've got concerns, take a second to go online and fill out a Good Ballot Report. Uh, We would love to hear from you. And please, please, please name yourself so that we're able to follow up with any concerns that you might have. All right. Well, this morning, I want to take us on a journey. Somebody say journey. I want to take us on a journey in the book of Luke, beginning in chapter 5, verses 36 through 38. We're going to jump to chapter 6, verse 5, and then we're going to finish in chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. The particular miracle we'll be looking at today is Jesus healing a man with dropsy. And before we read the text, I just want to go ahead and tell you my thesis this morning, my thrust. I hope to prove 
over the next 31 minutes and five seconds the following. That the Lordship of Jesus ushers in a new way for God's people to find their ultimate rest in him. I'm going to read that twice more. The Lordship of Jesus Christ ushers in a new way for God's people to find their ultimate rest in him. Once more, the Lordship of Jesus ushers in a new way for God's people to find their ultimate rest in him. Pick me up in chapter 5, verse 36. When you get there, say, oh yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. All right, let's do this. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, Desires new, for he says, the old is good. Jump to chapter 6, verse 5. And he, Jesus, said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jump over to chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 14, verse 1 reads, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, somebody say behold. That's an important word. We're going to come back to that here in a minute. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, would you meet us here? And would you not withhold your goodness from us? But lavish it upon us in measure undeserved. Meet us where we are, come to our neighborhood, sit on our front porch and minister to us you, not me. I have very little to give. I am but a frail messenger. So Spirit of God, if you do not think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, then we are all lost. Would you supernaturally minister to us in a way that would transform us, but minister to us in a way that we would walk out of here more convinced that you're, we that you're real and you're worthy of following. Lord, we pray and ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Amen. I've got three points for us as we kind of walk through the text. The first of which that is immediately seen is an interaction between two thoughts and ideas here where one has to naturally supersede the other. 
Point one this morning is compassion over compulsion. Compassion over compulsion. We're going to work through the text a bit backwards this morning. We're going to begin in chapter 14. We're going to work back to chapter 6, verse 5, and then we're going to go even further back to chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to go on a journey. Somebody say journey. And it begins with this very peculiar scenario here in the house of a Pharisee. There's a plot here to trick Jesus. Uh, Jesus gets invited over for dinner, and they've invited Jesus to dinner, not to ask questions, nor simply to dine with him, but to trap him. In fact, verse 1 says that they were watching him carefully. They had their eyes peeled. They're waiting for him to slip up and to make a mistake. They're waiting for him to say the wrong thing or act out of line. But there's something even more nefarious happening here in the text, beginning in verse 2 with the word behold. In the Greek, that word is edu, I-D-O-U, edu. It means look. It is a sudden appearance of something that we did not anticipate being here. Jesus walks into the house. He's going to get some grub. He's hoping the chicken don't taste like wood. He walks in the door, and there on the Sabbath is a man was dropsy. Now, dropsy is what we would refer to as edema. It's an influx of water to a particular side of your body that points to an underlying medical condition. So this man's actual condition isn't simply the inflammation and the swelling of his limbs, but there's a deeper problem. The man with dropsy actually mirrors the deeper issue with the Pharisees themselves. So here's this man. Behold, there was a man. Now something happens between verses two and three, and we don't actually know what it is, but there's a whole unspoken conversation here. I I sometimes wonder if uh, with my own sanctified imagination, if I were in the text, if I were in this house and I walk up in this house and I see this man and I look down and I see a swollen leg, I then begin to give the Pharisees the look that I would often give my siblings when I was like, come on, man, you know that come on, man, look. Because Jesus walks in and he knows exactly what's happening. Look at verse three. And Jesus responds. What is Jesus responding to? Jesus is responding to the silent challenge of, hey, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. Are you going to work on the Sabbath? Hey, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. Are you going to heal this man on the Sabbath and therefore violate the law? The trap here is for them to catch Jesus in sin. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus knows that if he heals this man, they have a reason to charge him. But if he doesn't heal this man, then they will see that mercy does not, in fact, govern his ministry. This is the trap. If you heal them, then you work on the Sabbath. Well, you're out. But if you don't heal them, then Mr. Merciful, you can't be God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus asks them a question. 
And the question that he asked points to this reality of compulsion. You might ask, what is compulsion? I've got a definition here, very simply, two different definitions. Compulsion is the action or state of forcing or being forced to do something. But I think a better definition is an irresistible urge to behave in a certain way, especially against one's conscious wishes. We sometimes throw around the phrase OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, as if it's a trite framing of our need to have things neat. When in fact, it's actually a very serious condition. And unlike that, or very much so like OCD, we all have these compulsory impulses. Paul understands this in Romans 7. He says, the very things that I don't want to do, I do them. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And the things I do want to do, those are the things I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. There is, despite conscious desire, an impulsive, compulsive desire to act or behave in a certain way. In short, in the words of Michael Jackson, they just can't help it. And yet these Pharisees are bound by their own religion, Judaism, to not rest on the Sabbath in the event that there is a life-threatening circumstance. They force themselves here to obey. We're not going to touch this man. This man is in need of our help. We're not going to touch them. They're forcing themselves to obey because after all, that is what the law is for. And yet in their heart of hearts, they know what they're doing is wrong. Because these men know Hosea 6.6, when God declares that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. These men know Micah 6.8. What is it that the Lord has required of you, O man, but to do what? To love mercy, to act justly, to walk humbly with your God. These men know. In Exodus 34, when God self-discloses himself to Moses, Moses asks perhaps the most audacious question in all of the scriptures, Lord, show me you. Show me your glory. Moses, in effect, is asking, show me the real you. And God is like, Moses, I'm not going to show you the real me because if I did, you would die. So I'm going to trail the residual effects of my glory past you after I hide you in the cleft of this rock. And as the glory of the Lord passes Moses, God sings, the Lord, the Lord. And the first word he uses to describe himself is merciful. Mercy. And they're silent because they're guilty. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Love mercy. The character and nature of God is merciful and gracious. And Jesus asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus has caught them in their own trap. Um, the, about a couple months ago, we have these glue traps in our 
in our uh, garage uh, back home. And, and I'll frequently put them out to catch different critters and rodents. And I told my son, hey, hey Cage, go ahead and put this trap uh, out there because we had just caught a snake in one of these glue traps. Uh, it's really quite painful for that snake. But uh, he was like, I want to catch another one. And he was like, well, if I don't catch a snake, then I'm going to catch a mouse. And I was like, all right, you're my son. Cool. Um, and so he puts this glue trap down. He loses his balance and he sticks his hand in the glue trap. <laughs> so now he's become the foil to his own foil, if you will, right? That Jesus sets it up in such a way that these men fall prey to their own trap. Because here's the reality. There was not a law that prohibited healing on the Sabbath. They made one up. So Jesus asked them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remain silent because they know they missed out on mercy and they know they've added laws where there have not been laws. Silence can be an indicator of guilt. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German theologian says, to not act is to act and, to not, and not to speak is to speak. And for them to sit with this broken man needing help on the Sabbath was for them to sit in their own condemnation. For they saw an object of mercy. And Jesus at the end says, if this were your son, you would be begging me to heal him. If this were your son, you would lack compulsion, if you will. And you would appeal to my compassion if this were your child you would be begging me to heal him. They lack mercy because they act compulsively. Hear, hear, hear me when I say this, Christian. This is really, really important. Legalism will always prevent you from being merciful because legalism causes us to care more for ourselves than others. Are y'all all right? Legalism will always prevent you from being merciful to others because legalism only cares about oneself. When I think about what it means to be merciful and others-centered, I think about a man named Nicholas Winton. He's a man that you probably may not have heard of, but Nicholas Winton was a, Briton, a Brit who lived... Uh, born in 1909, fought in the Great War, and uh, in the beginning parts of the Second World War was faced with a challenge. He had some business interests in Czechoslovakia and became aware that they would soon, many of the Jews in Czechoslovakia, be subject to concentration camps as Hitler was beginning to conquer that part of Europe. So he decides, without his wife knowing, decides to go to Czechoslovakia, set up a front company, and when it was all said and done, this man rescued almost 700 children from the hands of German oppression. Uh, he violated law after law after law. He broke rule after rule after rule. And it wasn't until in the 70s when his wife was looking through the attic and found a scrapbook with many of the detailed notes of each child and the child's parents and pictures and schedules for trains that she began to ask him about it. And the story comes out and she realized that she had been living with a hero. Compassion. Compassion. 
and mercy. Because the reality is that saving a life is more important than theological correctness. Mercy. Jesus desires mercy and compassion because that is at the heart of the law and the heart of God. The law was meant to act as a mirror to show us our own sinfulness and a window through which we could see the heart of God as being one who's merciful and gracious. It's a mirror and it's a window and friends, praise be to God that Jesus is compassionate to us every day. That when the sun rises on each morning, it is his mercy that is new every morning. Praise be to God that Jesus doesn't place restraining orders against his children. Not asking us to wait to come back at the appointed time before he can touch us to heal us. No, praise be to God. He doesn't place compulsion over compassion or else we would all be lost. And yet this text raises an important question. The question is, what are we supposed to do with the law of God in the Old Testament? On one hand, these Pharisees are acting as gatekeepers of the law against the man that seeks to destroy what they built with their lives. And yet the law is still glorious and it's good. And what should or what do we do with the law? In particular, the context of this passage is the Sabbath. We must look at the Sabbath. Jump back into chapter six, verse five with me. In chapter six, verse five, it's very simple. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. This comes after Jesus is walking through a field, picking heads of grain with the disciples. These men see that, the Pharisees and religious leaders see that as work. And Jesus reminds them of David who himself, when he was hungry, picked heads of grain from a field and ate on the Sabbath. These men confuse the letter of the law with the spirit of the law. When we think about Sabbath, why is the Sabbath so important? Because something unique happens on the seventh day of creation. On the seventh day of creation, what happens? God rests. I imagine God sitting in a giant recliner with his feet kicked up and a bowl of regular Lay's potato chips in his lap. I probably imagine that because those are my favorite potato chips, but anyway... It's the seventh day and God rests. And yet this is contradictory to a God who is inexhaustible. How can a God be inexhaustible and yet somehow need a nap? How can a God be indefatigable and yet somehow cease from doing? Psalm 121.4 says that he who watches over Israel will never sleep nor Slumber, And if God doesn't need to sleep or rest, so why does he on the seventh day? It's because, like a good teacher, he models for us that which is beneficial to us. I sometimes think about my seventh grade math teacher, who when we would ask a question, she would solve the question almost immediately in her head and give us the answer. Is that math teacher obligated to show her work to us. No, she can just give us the answer. And yet she ostensibly goes to the board. 
She draws out the equation. She walks through it step by step to show us and to model for us what it looks like to draw the right conclusions. In the same way, God who doesn't need to sleep, he models for us how to solve the problem. And the problem is that your heart and my heart will take really good things and we will worship them. And God knows this. And so the Sabbath was made for man to rest. It was created for men and women not to burden us, but created for us. And how wise of the Lord to look into human hearts and know that we would always take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. In particular, our work. I am a self-confessed workaholic. And one of the reasons this season is so hard for me is I feel like I'm failing at my job. I'm here three days a week. The rest of the week, I'm packing, I'm trying to move. I'm on the phone, I'm on Zooms. I can never do enough. But that's part of my own brokenness is that I equate doing with being and that with righteousness. So if I can't do, then who am I? And if I can't do, am I really righteous? And what the Sabbath does is it causes me to slow down and to fix my eyes on that which is actually the source of my worth. And it's work primarily that is so easy for us to take our eyes off of. Work, it's actually one of the things that we can take in, in exceptionally large doses and it won't kill us. But when we take it in doses too large, too often without a break, it will certainly kill us. And work was originally meant to be good. And friends, let me just say there's going to be work in heaven, but not the groaning type of work that some of y'all wake up tomorrow, right? At six o'clock, it's like, I can't believe I'm doing this again, right? Tuesday happens, the alarm clock goes off on Tuesday. You're like, man, it's been a long week. And not that kind of work, but a work that is fulfilling and glorious and good, a work that God ordains. And yet, we need this Sabbath because we need to place work in its proper perspective and we need to exalt God to the place of worship. And here's the point. Let me say this. The Sabbath was not meant to be a master over God's people, but as a service to them. I'm going to say that again. The Sabbath was not meant to be a master over God's people, but as a service to them. These Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a master, and they were going to obey it against all other objectives. And what they did is they exalted Sabbath to the level of God and forgot God and what he required of them. It's very, very easy to do. And that's why we need a Sabbath. Friends, I want you to hear me. I want you to lean in really closely. And I want to say this with all the pastoral wisdom and tenderness and gentleness that I can muster. You need a Sabbath because you need to be reminded that you are not God. You aren't. And how is it that God rests on the seventh day, but your identity is on how hard you work and how much you get done, and you're on week three without a real Sabbath? Friend, you're not God. 
Sabbath also reminds you, and again, with all the pastoral sensitivity, and let me just, let me just tell y'all before I ever preach a sermon to y'all, I preach this to myself. I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. Y'all just happen to be in the room. And so this is a word for me, but it's also a word for you. Friend, I love you. I really do. But you're limited. You can't do everything. And that's okay. Because God can. Sabbath reminds you that you're limited. Only God can neither sleep nor slumber. Only God requires no external help or aids to continue his levels of productivity. And yet God, even God, rests. But we need the Sabbath to point our eyes to God. Now, now there's more going on here with Sabbath rest. And I'm about to get happy. I got six minutes left. All right. But, but, but Jesus, what we see him doing at the surface, he heals a man, he rebukes the Pharisees. He's doing something deeper. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then we get this narrative about wine and wineskins. You might be wondering, how does all this fit together? Uh, let, me, let me say it this way. Stay with me here. I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. All right. Every Old Testament law or promise was multidimensional, meaning that there is a present and a future component as well as a physical and a spiritual component. So what is Jesus doing with the Sabbath? The Old Testament law, there's a present and future component and there's a physical and spiritual component. Stay with me, I'm going somewhere. If we were to take the promised land, for example, in the Old Testament, there is a present fulfillment, which is the land across the Jordan. It's Canaan for Israel. That's the physical manifestation. You've got a future component to the promised land. This is the new heavens and the new earth. It's the place where we will dwell with God and to God with us. We won't need the sun because the glory of God will be all the light that we need. There is a physical component to the promised land, actual real land that you can touch, real land that you can plow, that you can subdue, real land full and flowing with milk and honey, with giant grapes and giants in the land. It's physical, it's real, and it's spiritual. It's a place of rest from sin. Now for the Israelites, the wilderness they wandered in was literally called sin, God delivers them from sin into the promised land, which symbolizes rest. Are y'all smelling what I'm stepping in? So watch this. Luke chapter six, verse five, Jesus says that the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Hear me now. Jesus can be the Lord of the Sabbath because Jesus is the Sabbath. Let's explore this. Jesus is the present, the future, the physical, and the spiritual fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the present fulfillment because in Christ, we have rest today. We're no longer bound by our sin, but we're bound by grace to God in Christ by faith. Hallelujah. He is also the future fulfillment of Sabbath because in Christ we will have a forever rest. It is a forever Sabbath. 
It is forever being with God and ceasing from our striving in Christ. He is the physical Sabbath. We have the hope of a physical rest from our physical ailments and infirmities. Jesus actually walks with us. And yeah, Kanye West may have said it, but Jesus actually is with us now. He is the physical manifestation of rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? He's saying, I'm giving you me. And ultimately, he is the spiritual fulfillment of Sabbath because in Christ, we have the hope of rest from our strivings to save ourselves. We're resting from that and we're finding our rest in Jesus. Jesus is always saying more than what he's actually saying and accomplishing more than what you think he's actually accomplishing. Let me say it in the words of the great African prophet, theologian, who I consider the greatest influence on the church in the West and around the world. Augustine says, thou has made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Here's the point, friend. Jesus ain't just a prophet. He ain't just a good dude. Jesus ain't the side chick to your relational religiosity. Jesus is not some addition to your moral attire wherein you get points for somehow associating yourself with him. No, Jesus is Lord. More specifically, contextually, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath who offers you rest. And he offers you rest because we need rest. Finally, I want to close our time by looking at what this actually means for us. So what does this actually mean for us? Jump back to chapter 5, verses 36 through 38. There's this really confusing conversation about old and new garments, old and new wineskins. We were cleaning out our attic a couple weeks ago, and my wife found... Uh, this old christening dress and bonnet that uh, her mother had made her save, right? And and, uh, we apparently had lost it, but this garment is 36 plus years old and it's got a rip in it and it's got some other things in it. And when when I think about sewing or patching something up, you don't want to put a new clothes patch on an old garment like that because when you wash it, the new garment's going to contract, The old garment's going to stay the same, which means you're going to be right back where you started from. That garment's going to rip. And you don't put new wine in old wineskins because old wineskins get hard. They get formed. When you put new wine in old wineskins, as the wine ferments inside of the wineskins, the gases expand. And eventually what happens is the wineskin ruptures, the wine spills, and your wineskin is ruined. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm not coming to give y'all Judaism 2.0. What I'm actually doing is something new. I'm not coming to put new wine in old wineskins. I'm coming to give you something revolutionary new that's never been seen. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, don't mix the new and the old because Jesus is bringing a new approach to God. Here's what this means. I want to admonish you right now. This will be the only sermon I'll ever preach here for as long as the Lord has me here. 
we must stop taking credit for our own salvation because it wasn't us. Friends, we got to stop. And we have to rid ourselves of the illusion that somehow it is our own work that keeps us in the good graces of God. Because what that mindset is, it's old wineskin mentality. These Pharisees are looking at 613 rules from the Old Testament, 613 laws and saying, you have to obey all 613 in order to be right with God. I'm looking at 613 Old Testament laws saying, child, please, ain't no way. I'm ruined. If this is dependent on me, I'm ruined. My God, I can't do this. To which God says, that's the point. That's why I sent Jesus so that he could for you, so that you don't have to try, you can only be. The spirit of God has to keep us and rescue us from the religion of try harder. Jesus isn't asking you to try harder, he's asking you to fix your eyes on him and truly believe what he's already said is true. I'm done. Not quite, let me say this. Um, Immediate application. All right, I'm two minutes over. Immediate application, all right? I, I think there's a call here for us to see the gospel, right? To see the gospel, not only as the A, B, and C of the Christian life, right? That somehow you, you get the gospel, you master the gospel, and then once you get the gospel, you move on to more complex and important things. The gospel is not the A, B, and C of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life which means that as we grow up in the image and the likeness of Jesus and as we grow deeper in the gospel, we begin to see a Christ who grows more glorious to us. The Sabbath will only ever be a rule if we only ever see it as such. But when you categorize and see the Sabbath as a person, now relationally there's value in us taking that day to spend it with the one for whom it was created for. So very quick application. Friend, one, rest from a works-based understanding of salvation. Rest. You're trying to put new wine in old wineskins. What you do is you end up ruining the wineskin and the wine. Stop doing it. Cease from your striving and your work. Second, I want you to rest from the burden of the law. Right? Your sin, our sin convicts us and condemns us. And I want you to know that in the same way that we flagellate and flog ourselves because of our sin, we also need to bless ourselves because of what Christ has done. So when Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's true. And in 1 John, when John writes, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friend, you need to rest from your self-flagellation and walk in grace. But also this Sabbath rest causes us to point our head and our eyes forward to heaven, to the day when we will be with Jesus, not floating in a disembodied way in the sky, but actually embodied souls here on this earth as Christ Jesus remakes all things and we spend our eternity with him. So at the end of every sermon, we tend to take a little bit of time to just reflect on what the Lord has spoken. This morning, we're gonna take communion here in just a moment, but before we do, I want us to take this time to, to spend some time praying, 
Asking the Lord, how is it that you by your spirit are encouraging me to apply this to my life? But also, in what ways do we see this meal as articles of our secession from our own work? So let's take the next 30 to 40 seconds and let's just spend a little time in silence before the Lord and then we'll come to the table of the Lord here in just a moment. As a benediction this morning, we're gonna be sent out with the words from Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Author of Hebrews writes, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet remains without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. May the mercy and grace be upon you as you go this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we love you. Live sent.